two different main parts of church. There's the, the music part and then the spoken word part. And a lot of times people that, um, people that don't have a very healthy relationship with Jesus, they'll come to church and during the music part, they are entertained as spectators rather than worshiping Jesus as participators. And uh, if that's you, it's okay that you're there now. I just want you to have the goal of, even though the music is phenomenal, even though it's very entertaining, we have great singers, great musicians, we should never let how talented these people are stop us from worshiping God during the portion of our music service. Uh, the way you know if, if, if Jesus is the reason you're worshiping or if you just enjoy the music or not is by whether or not you sing, clap, lift your hands, dance. It's over and over again in the Bible. And what amazes me about those different forms of worship is that's something that we get to do for Jesus. Like how, how amazing is it that we can actually do something that blesses him? And so I encourage you during worship, even though it's really, really great singing, you know, we lift our hands, we clap, we sing like the Bible says to do. And if you don't start doing it, I'm going to start singing. And that way we'll know that you're not here for the talented uh, singers. So that's good. So the other part of the service is the sermon. And it seems like uh, there's this um, wave across Christians around the world where uh, pastors, and, and this is okay if this is what God's telling them to do, but it seems like a lot of sermons have just become good advice. Um, and, and personally, my thought on good advice is I love good advice, and that's great. But I like, if I'm going to hear good advice, I want to watch Dr. Phil. That's just some good advice, you know? Um, but when we hear a sermon, it should be the Word of God and what He thinks and what Jesus says. And we shouldn't let good advice take the place of a sermon becoming life to us. Everybody say life. 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 And so um, I wanted to say that, and also uh, there was something else about this series that I wanted to tell you that I've been debating whether or not to share this with you, because uh, I didn't want to burst your bubble, but I think knowledge is very helpful. So for your notes, um, the name Jesus was never spoken on this planet until a few hundred years ago. No one ever said Jesus when he was on earth. Uh, J-E-S-U-S was not spoken. I know that shocks a lot of you to think that Jesus did not speak English when he was on earth. Um, nor was he an American, nor was he a Republican or a Democrat, by the way. But anyway, I know that's shocking to you. But anyway, so the, what they did call him, his name was actually Yeshua. That's what they called him all, all, all until just maybe four or five hundred years ago. And it's okay that we are his adopted family and we call him Jesus. That's okay. But I just wanted you to know that even the name Yeshua, if it was translated into English, it would not be Jesus. It would actually be the name Joshua. And the name Joshua means the God who saves me. Now why this means a lot to my heart is because there were two Joshuas in the Old Testament. The first one led God's people into the promised land. The second one, a few thousand or so years later, led God's people back into the promised land after they were taken captive. This blesses me because it tells me no matter how many times I turn my back on God, Jesus will always pursue me to take me back to him over and over and over and over again. So I wanted to share that with you. For your notes, they did not speak English in Bible days. Um, I had a lady one time tell me she'll never come to my church unless I use the King James Version of the Bible. And I told her, I said, you know, Jesus never spoke in King James English. She was shot, and I never talked to her again. Anyway, so that's that story. So part four today on our series, part four, I want to talk to you about Jesus, the miracle maker. Jesus, the miracle maker. This is the conclusion of our series. And uh, some people say, there are Christians that say the day of miracles is gone. The day of miracles is over. The day of miracles is dead. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking is 
Jesus is not over. Jesus is not gone. And Jesus is not dead. If the day of miracles were not still in play today, then none of us could get saved. Because it's a miracle that we got saved. It's a miracle that some of you are in church today. It's a miracle that some of you are alive today. Um, if there's a point, there's some miracle that some of you are not in jail today. Amen. <laughs> there's a miracle that the cops haven't found some of y'all yet. Um, I'm just kidding. Okay, it is natural for Jesus to be supernatural. That is a natural thing. I want you to know, just like you get up this morning, none of you thought about Ooh, do I need to learn how to breathe again? Am I breathing? Your breathing is natural. In the same way, Jesus doing miracles is normal. It's natural, just like you breathing. But the question I have is this. If Jesus is the miracle maker, what does it take to receive a miracle? Uh, what is the mathematical equation? What is the common denominator in the Bible? What do we have to do? How do we have to pray? How many times do we have to pray? In what fashion do we pray? What words do we use? Do we need to come down to the altar for a miracle? If I come to church enough times in the next two months, will I get a miracle? What is the mathematical, biblical equation, the common denominator in everyone that received a miracle? That's what I want to talk about today. Because I don't know about you, I think things like that. I think, okay, I need a miracle. What do I got to do? What do I got to, you know, conjure up? What do, I, what, what do I need to say? How do I need to act to receive a miracle? How many of you in here today, uh, in some area of your life, or some dream in your heart, or some desire God has given you, or some person in your life that you're praying for, how many of you need something to happen in your life that there's no way you cannot do it on your own? In your own money, your own, your own contacts in your phone, your own mindset, your own friends. You cannot accomplish something that you know is in your heart. You need a miracle from Jesus. How many of you is that today? Okay, everybody but the one lady sitting over on the left at the back. Okay, so, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so, so, what is the equation? What do we have to do to receive a miracle? What does it take? I mean, I mean we all need one in some area of our life. So, what, what do we need to do? So, here's what I, I did. Because I love you, I read every single miracle that Jesus did in the entire Bible. I studied everyone thoroughly. And I've put together a mathematical equation, but what I'm going to do is I need y'all to help me figure out if it's right or not. So I'm going to read different miracles that Jesus did in the Bible. And at the end of each miracle, you're going to write down in your notes or take a mental note of what you think that person did to receive the miracle. And at the end of the sermon, we're going to look and see what's the common denominator. What did everybody do to receive this miracle from Jesus in their life? Pretty cool, right? Okay, good. So, different miracles in the Bible, and if it bores you or if you're offended that we're going to read the Bible in church, I'm real sorry, you know, shocker to you, we're going to read the Bible. It's going to be a lot of scripture, but you'll be okay. So, the first miracle that's recorded in the Bible that Jesus did uh, was the water to wine. Now, this was a big wedding, and, and for your notes, um, they, theologians believe that it was John, the, one, the writer of, of John in the gospel, that it was his wedding. Uh, they believe that strongly. Um, and, and the way weddings work was, it wasn't a one-day event with a honeymoon. It was a seven-day event with no honeymoon. They spent all the money and everything on the people that were invited to the wedding. They would take off work and travel to where the wedding was and stay there, and they would party like it was 1999 B.C. Like, it, they would just party. And, and it, was, it, was, it was food and wine for seven days. I mean, for seven days. It was like bike week. I mean, it was just, you know, just, it was great. And so, um... <laughs> So after three days, the wine runs out. 
Now this would have been a scandalous event. It would have been a shame to the family forever. They would be known as the couple that got married, that everybody came to the wedding, and after three days, everybody had to go home and go back to work. Scandalous event, but Jesus stepped in, okay? John 2.2, 2, it says, Jesus' mother and his disciples were there. They were invited. On the third day, the wine ran out. So Jesus' mother told him. Everybody say told. This is what women do sometimes, just as a side note. They don't ask, they, they tell. Jesus, they have no more wine. And this is what men do sometimes, right? In verse 4, woman, that's not my problem, you know? It's like when, I'm, when my wife says, these are your socks on the ground. Thank you. I knew they were my socks before you told me that. What she's really saying is, pick up your socks off the ground, right? It's like when my wife makes dinner or when she made dinner that one time. After we were done eating, after we were done eating, I thought that she was going to take my plates back to the sink for me, but she didn't. Instead, she grunted. She didn't ask. She didn't tell. She just said, uh, um, which means in woman talk, take your plates back to the dishwasher. I'm never making dinner for you ever again the rest of your life. That's what it means. So Jesus, they have no more wine. Woman, that's not my problem. The funniest thing happens next is probably the most profound statement in the Bible. Verse 5, his mother told the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. And then I think she looked at Jesus and went, huh, and then walked away. And Jesus had to honor his mother. In verse 6, standing by, there were six ceremonial washing pots. Each pot, the Bible says, could hold up to 30 gallons of water. Jesus told the servants, Fill the jars with water. Here's my question. How much wine do you think they got back in those jars? Here's the answer. Whatever amount of water they put in. If they had put in 15 gallons each, they would have got 15 gallons of wine. If they had put back 20 gallons each, they would have got back 20 gallons of wine. Here's the point I'm making. Our obedience can be measured. It can actually be measured. I believe in this particular story... I believe the miracle was completely and totally based on obedience. Would you agree? If they had not done what Jesus said, they would have not received a miracle. Now, there's a lot of people that come to me all the time, John Paul, I want to know God's will for my life. What does God want me to do? What am I supposed to do? What goals do I need to achieve for God? How does Jesus want me to act? And here's what I say to them. What is Jesus telling you to do right now? Not 10 years from now, not five years from now, not, you know, when you retire. What is he asking you to do today? And a lot of people say, well, I don't know. So you open up the Bible, and there's about a hundred things you could read in five minutes. How about forgiving the people that have hurt you? Let's just start with that today. How about joining a New Testament church? It's a hundred times in the Bible. How about serving the body of Christ or being a giver? No, I want to find out God's perfect will for my life. If you can't do what he's asking you to do right now, the small things, how do you ever expect him to show you the big things that he wants you to accomplish? The interesting thing about this story is the ceremonial washing pots. You just went by, washed your hands, and went into the wedding. A lot of people's religion is like ceremonial washing pots. They come to church, wash their hands, and they're done for the week. But until you add obedience to Jesus Christ, you'll never get heaven's wine in whatever it is you're doing in life. Man, that's a good message, right? Adding obedience to Jesus can turn ceremonial washing pots into heaven's wine. I believe that was the answer for this miracle. Let's see if it's the same in the rest of them. Okay, next miracle, the bleeding woman. Uh, this was a menstrual bleed, menstrual cramps. 
She was bleeding for 12 years. Now, men, um, I want you to think about if you had a paper cut that bled for 12 years, then multiply that times a thousand. And that's probably what she felt like. I am told that menstrual pain and bleeding is some of the worst pain that a woman could ever suffer. Uh, in, in Mark 5, 25, the Bible does not exaggerate. It says there was a woman who suffered terribly from severe bleeding for 12 years. Um, about a week or so ago, my wife had a, a horrible menstrual cramp. I mean, it was, I've never seen another human being in real life in this much pain. Uh, she was screaming and crying and she was sweating and it was, she was in so much pain. She was nauseous and I'm praying so hard for her. Um, maybe we don't have health insurance. And I'm like, oh, please, Jesus, heal her very, very quickly. And her pain was so severe, it was almost like the cold that I got like three months ago. I had a bad cough. I was in bed for two or three days. I was like, oh, Jesus, say, help me. Anyway, so I prayed real hard. And Jesus healed her, thank God, thank God. But imagine, it was maybe 12 minutes. Imagine 12 years. Every pair of clothes she had had blood stains on it. She couldn't go out in public and feel confident about herself. Everyone knew her. As the woman who was bleeding, I doubt she had a love interest in her life. Every day it was pain. And imagine the strength leaving your body whenever you're bleeding on a regular basis every single day. Here's the interesting thing. The Bible says that she used all of her money to do whatever she could to be healed. How many people do we know that have tried everything to be happy? Everything to have joy. Everything just to feel whole everything to get rid of the depression, everything to get rid of the fear. They've done everything they can. Everything. Um, I was reading some Jewish commentaries and they told most likely what all the doctors that she went to before she ran out of money had her do to stop the bleeding, okay? It was kind of written in Old English, but you'll understand it. They would tell her, take some gum from a tree in Alexandria and be given wine to drink. If this fails... Take Persian onions, boil them in wine, and drink. If this fails, set the woman in a place where two roads meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her hand and have someone come behind her and scare her. If this fail, take a handful of cumin and crocus Boil them in wine for her to drink. I mean, the goal is to just get her drunk so she forgets she's bleeding. <laughs> you had to be drunk to try this stuff. If this fails, dig seven trenches. Burn vines under four years old in the trenches. While they're burning, take a cup of wine and be led from trench to trench and have her sit on the fire. Twelve years and she tried everything. And then one day she heard that the miracle maker was coming through her town. She didn't feel like getting out of bed. She didn't feel like putting a smile on her face. She didn't even feel like probably getting dressed, going out in public. But she persevered and pressed through the crowd. And in verse 28, she kept saying to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be whole. No one told her to touch his robe. Nobody did that. In fact, Jesus didn't even touch her. She touched him in verse 29 after she touched his robe suddenly. Everybody say suddenly. Man, suddenly is what happens when you meet the miracle maker. She was healed and the bleeding stopped. So what did she do 
to get a miracle in her life? Well, I believe the answer was perseverance. I believe that was it. She didn't give up. She kept going forward. She kept thinking, you know, if I can just get to Jesus, she kept saying it over and over. I think that there was no obedience in this one, but there was perseverance. Let's look at the next one, the leprous man. Uh, the leprous man, he was shunned from society. He couldn't hug his children, didn't, couldn't hug his wife, couldn't watch his kids play ball. He was a loner. He was by himself because he had a disease. Um, society didn't really notice him. Nobody really saw him. Nobody talked to him. He was completely shunned. In Mark 140, a man with leprosy knelt in front of Jesus begging. Now, there's a key word there. Begging to be healed. If you are willing you can heal me, he said. Now, this is our question as well. We all believe that Jesus can do a miracle in our life, but our question is this. Are you willing to do one for me? We know you can do miracles, but are you willing to do one for somebody that doesn't serve in church? Are you willing to do one for somebody that's behind the scenes? Are you willing to do one for somebody that doesn't have a talent that puts them on stage, doesn't have any leadership ability, they haven't done a lot of great things in their life, is Jesus willing to do a miracle for somebody who basically just keeps to themselves, doesn't do anything for anybody else, is a loner? Will Jesus do something for someone like this? In verse 41, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him and said, I am willing. Be healed. What in the world did this guy do in his life to deserve or earn a miracle from Jesus Christ. What I love about this story is there was a law that if the unclean touched the clean, then the clean would become unclean. Jesus made a new law. When the unclean touches the clean Jesus, the clean Jesus makes the unclean clean again. And we think, you know, a lot of people think, well, does God even notice me? I mean, does he even see me? I mean, I'm not on stage. I don't, you know, play an instrument. I'm not, you know, one of the main leaders. I don't pray for people down front. I barely come to church. I don't give in the offering. Am I a candidate for Jesus to do a miracle in my life? The answer is yes. Um, I remember whenever I first started pastoring, I was so excited to preach to anybody. And so I was at a garage sale, um, and I, I met this lady. We started talking. She was about 60 years old or so. And uh, she was one of the nastiest people I've ever met in my life, physically. Uh, she had not bathed, you could tell, in weeks. Um, she, you know, had half of her teeth were missing. Um, her clothes were disgusting. And, uh, but she was so kind and so nice, so we started talking. And um, I told her I was a preacher at a library. And she said, um, I've never been to church my entire life. I said, well, I'd love for you to come visit me. She said, you would? I said, yeah, I'd love for you to have you. I told her where we meet at. She said, oh... I don't drive, I just walk everywhere. And we were at a garage sale near her where she stayed at. I said, well, I'll pick you up. She said, you'll do what? I said, I'll pick you up. You'll pick me up. I said, I'll pick you up for church and I'll bring you home afterwards. I said, give me your cell phone number, your phone number, and I'll call you. She said, I don't have a phone, but I live so-and-so, so-and-so. I said, okay, I'll be there tomorrow morning. I went to pick her up. I've never seen a trailer like this in my life. Half of the roof was completely missing. There was no door on the wall, on the, on the front of the trailer, no door. There was no electricity. And she lived off of her vegetable garden and $120 a month from the government. When she got in my car, it was the worst smell you could ever imagine. 
I had to uh, dry clean my clothes every week just about for the one year or so that I picked her up until she passed away and went to, went to heaven. I'll tell you about that in a second. But uh, it was a horrible smell, horrible. But her breath always smelled great because she got drunk every day off of Listerine. She didn't have enough money for alcohol. I found out later she had cancer and was in pain. So she drank every day bottles of Listerine to get drunk. Don't try this at home, teenagers. After you're done with your iPod pad, what are those things called? They put in the, the teenagers. Typods. Our teenagers don't do that here. But the Baptist church. Anyway, and so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And so, so her breath smelled okay, you know. And so, so we went to church and she loved it. Loved it. After, after we, I took her and said, oh, you're the greatest preacher I've ever heard. I said, I'm the only preacher you've ever heard your whole life. I said, but you're still great. Man, listen, she loved church. Loved it. Now, the funny thing is, is I remember one Sunday, I, I, there was a little box for tithes and offerings. And I never looked to see who gives and who doesn't. But this Sunday, I just happened to look. And she had her hand in her bra. And she pulled out all the money she had out of her bra. Didn't even count it. It was $3. She put the whole thing in the box. She never once asked us for money. She would bring vegetables from her garden to bless me and my family. She gave her life to Jesus in the library before she died and went to be with me. Listen, it was a miracle that we met that day at the garage sale. It was a miracle that she was willing to come to church. It's a miracle that she's in heaven today. God sees people that nobody else sees. And we should always be a church, always be a church that sees people that society may shun. Or that people, listen, they, they don't have a lot of money. They don't live at Market Common. They don't smell like you smell. They don't act like you act. But listen, they all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. In the case of the leprous man, all he did was ask. That's it. That's all he did. He just asked, can you heal me? Please heal me. And he was healed. What is the common denominator in all these? What about the demon-possessed boy? He didn't ask for nothing. His father asked for it. In Mark 9, 23, Jesus told his father, anything's possible to the one who believes. In this story, Jesus said, if you believe, your son will be healed. It was a father's faith. It was belief. You can put it up there. There you go. It was belief. Okay, what about the bent woman? She was bent for 18 years. 18 years. In Luke 13, 10 through 14, Jesus was teaching in a church one day. There was a woman who had been crippled and bent over for 18 years. She didn't ask. She didn't say, I believe. I don't even know if she knew Jesus was going to be there. Jesus said to her, woman, you're healed. Instantly, she could stand straight and began praising God. What did she do? All she did was meet with Jesus. That's it. That's all she did was meet with him. She met with the miracle maker. And he said, everybody in the Bible who met with Jesus was healed. Got a miracle. Lepers were healed. Prostitutes forgiven. Criminals liberated. Demon possessed set free. Lame walked. Blind could see. The lost were saved. The only way we miss out on meeting with Jesus is by not showing up. That's the only way. You can meet with him anytime. In your house, in your car. The only way we miss out is if we don't show up. But is this the common denominator? Is this what, is it, is it faith? Is faith the common? Let me ask you this. Lazarus was dead. What kind of faith did he have? He's dead as a doornail. He's dead. Like the speaker, he was just laying there in a grave. You say, well, 
his sisters had faith and they asked. No, they didn't. They complained and said, Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been here, then he wouldn't have died. And Jesus raised him from the dead. What did he do? Is it that they believe in Jesus? I know this. Everybody who believes in Jesus. That's the answer, right? What about the Pharisaic murderer named Saul? <laughs> he was in charge of stoning one of Jesus' disciples. Acts 8.1. Saul wholeheartedly approved the stoning of Stephen. Saul was going everywhere, destroying the church. He went from house to house, dragging out men and women to throw into prison. He was destroying families, destroying Christians, destroying everything that Jesus believed in and died for. Surely, Jesus would not do a miracle for this guy. Acts 9.3, as Saul was traveling to Damascus to persecute Christians, suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. I love how it says a light from heaven. This is just say a light. I love the fact that it was a light that actually came from heaven. And a voice said, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul said, who are you? Here was the reply, I am Jesus. In that one suddenly, the entire world was forever changed because Saul became Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, who we get all this Bible teaching from on church and leaders. We're here today because of one suddenly. So what are the qualifications for receiving a miracle? What is it? Let me ask you this. There are dozens and dozens of scriptures in the Bible that in the same verse, it talks about salvation and healing. So what did you and I do to earn our salvation? In fact, let me tell you, let me tell you something that's really good news. You are not good enough to go to heaven. That is such good news. Because if you were good enough to go to heaven, that means by this time tomorrow, you're probably going to do something that's going to make you not good enough to go to heaven. The good news is you are bad enough for Jesus to save you. You're bad enough for Jesus Christ to have given his life for you. You and I, we are bad enough for that. It says in Mark 2.17, Jesus said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I don't come here to call the righteous. I come here to call the sinners. Here's good news. Jesus came to call me. He didn't come to call perfect people. He came to call sinners. He came to call people that were bad enough to need salvation. The common denominator in each person's life who received a miracle from Jesus is simply this. They needed a miracle. Man, that is such good news. Ah, the fact that, <laughs> listen, that the common denominator in every person that's received a miracle is simply this. They just needed one. I wonder how many hundreds of miracles Jesus has already done in your life you've probably forgotten about. I wonder how many more miracles he's going to do just this week in your life that you may not even notice. There's a true story about a young man years ago. He lived in um, South Korea, and he was dying from tuberculosis. One of his lungs had already collapsed. The other one was there, but he was in complete and total pain. He was in his bedroom, screaming in pain, waiting to die. His mom was there, didn't know what to do. They didn't have enough medicine to take away the pain. And as he was screaming, he started calling out to different gods. He said, Buddha, if you're up there, help me. Nothing happened. 
Muhammad, I need you. Nothing happened. On and on he went. Finally, he screamed out in such pain, if there's any God up there, I'm not asking you to heal me. I'm asking you to hurry up and kill me so I can be out of this pain and misery. At that exact same time, there was a college girl walking in the neighborhood, just going on a walk. She said she felt what was like a very unusual, um, strange love drawing her to this house. She went to the door of the house, rang the doorbell. The mom came to the door and she said, listen, I know this is really weird, but is there anything that I can pray with you about right now? The mom started crying, grabbed her arm, pulled her into the back bedroom where the boy was at. She prayed for the young man. Not only was he healed, but he gave his life to Jesus. The thing that makes this story so special to me is that that young man was Dr. David Yonggi Cho, who is the pastor of the world's largest church that has ever existed on planet Earth with over one million church members. Here's Dr. David Yonggi Cho. Here's what's interesting about this. Okay, listen. He didn't believe. He had no faith. He didn't even believe in God. I am bad enough, I'm messed up enough, I'm sick enough, and I'm probably weird enough for Jesus to do a miracle in my life because I serve the miracle maker. Man, this is great news. Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power, and Jesus went everywhere doing good and healing some, healing the good people. Healing the ones that went to church and tithed that Sunday. He was healing all who were oppressed by the devil. If you have any oppression in your life today, pride, selfishness, fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, poverty, whatever kind of oppression you have, you're in perfect position for Jesus to do a miracle for you. There are two crazy lies that the devil tells us Christians. One is this, you're better than everybody else. And the other one is this, you're worse than everybody else. And those two lies, I believe, can stop miracles. Because the same price was paid for the people that you think you're better than and the people you think you're worse than. And for all of us, it's all the same price. It was all the blood of Jesus Christ. We see people like Rosie O'Donnell, and we think, could Jesus do a miracle for her? I mean, can he do something for her? I mean, she publicizes sexual immorality. Could Jesus ever do something for her? Let me ask this. Did he do something for the woman who was actually caught in adultery in John 8? Actually caught. She didn't go there repenting. She was caught in sexual immorality. And it was a miracle that day that she wasn't stoned to death and that she was saved by Jesus. She was brought before the greatest pastor of all time, not because she was looking for help, but because she was caught doing the very thing that we condemn other people for. And Jesus did a miracle for her. Let me ask you this. Could Jesus do a miracle for the BTK killer? A murderer could Jesus ever help someone heal someone deliver someone do miracles for someone who's a murderer? I don't know let's ask Moses let's ask King David let's ask Paul the Apostle see what they think about it here's the last question could Jesus do a miracle for you of course he can he did it for the thief on the cross I mean this is how I compare myself my tattoo is the thief on the cross your whole life, you think, man, I can't do anything right. My whole life. Try, try, try. Even my good deeds are like filthy rags compared to what Jesus did. 
What a miracle it was the day that they crucified this thief out of all the days in Rome, out of all the things, out of all the places, the day they crucify him is the day that he got right next to his Lord and Savior. What a miracle that is. It's a miracle that he's in heaven today. Jesus wants to do a miracle for your life. He wants to do one for your children, at your job, in your body, in your finances. We serve the miracle maker. John 21, 25. Jesus did so many other things. If they were written down, the world could not even contain all of the books. And I believe that your name's somewhere in those books if they were written. And there's probably a thousand things he's already done for you. I told you at the beginning of the sermon, I was going to leave you with the 300 names for Jesus in the Bible. You got your pens ready? I try, I try to put them together in alphabetical order to help you. You know, when I study something, I can't not tell you about it after I study. So I call this, that's my Jesus. Okay? Everybody say, that's my Jesus. He's the ancient of days, the day spring, the springer of wells, the well that never runs dry, the angel of God, the almighty, amen, arm of God, advocate, apostle of profession, alpha and omega, beginning of the end, the first and the last, the last Adam, first begotten, beginning of creation, author and finisher of our faith, author of eternal salvation, and final authority. He was a baby born, holy child, only son, beloved of God, bridegroom, bread of life, blessed assurance, chief cornerstone, chief shepherd, the Christ and consolation of Israel. He's my door, my deliverer, my defender, my family, my friend, my faithful and true, everlasting to the end. He's the faithful witness, good shepherd, great high priest, governor, glory, goodness, head of the church, most humble servant, holy one of Israel, Emmanuel, God is with us. He's more than I'll ever need, more than the eye could ever see. Fills my cup, says it's finished, now his grace is sufficient for me. That's my Jesus. He's the king of the ages, king of the Jews, king of the saints, king of glory, king of heaven, king of righteousness, king of kings, and king of my heart. He's the lamb, the law, the life, the light, the lion of Judah, the lily of the valley, the healer of the lame, lord of glory, lover of my soul, the root of David, rose of Sharon, the rock, but not Dwayne. He's the man of sorrows, mediator, Messiah, messenger of God, my prophet, my great physician, hope, peace, freedom, redeemer, risen Lord. He is the resurrection. He's my father, my mother, my sister, my brother, my light, my love, number one and no other. My punishment, he took my penalty, my pardon. He took the crown of thorns upon his head, was nailed to a tree. They thought he was dead. He traded places with me and Barabbas, became a catalyst for the missions across the atlas. If you need some rest, I know a mattress. If you don't know Jesus, your future is tragic. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The sanctifier of my soul, my song, the sacrifice of my sins, my savior, shepherd, supreme ruler, strength, steadfast, and sovereign. He's the son of man, son of the most high, son of the blessed, son of David, son of righteousness, the tree of life, the door, the way, the word, true light, true bread, true bind, truth, and victorious. That's my Jesus. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, captain of the angel army, servant, ruler, highest personality in philosophy, loftiest idea in literature, fundamental doctrine of true theology, the only one who qualifies to be all-sufficient, He's the centerpiece of civilization, available anytime, sustainer, guard, guide, heals the sick, cleanses the lepers, forgives the sinners, and discharges the debtors. He delivers the captives, defends the feeble, blesses the children, serves the unfortunate, rewards the diligent, the key to knowledge, wellspring of wisdom, doorway of deliverance, pathway of peace, roadway of righteousness, highway of holiness, gateway of glory. His life is matchless, his goodness is limitless, his love never changes, his word is enough, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He died for the church, he's the head of the church, he built the church, he won't let hell prevail against the church. He chose the church to train his sheep and advance his kingdom. I try to describe him, but he's indescribable. I try to comprehend him, but he's incomprehensible. He's invincible, indestructible, and irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind, you can't remove him from your world, you can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him. Lucifer couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That is my Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>